I went to interview, I think it was Fish of Marillion once at the EMI Records headquarters in Manchester Square in London. And I got out of the interview after about an hour and I walked around the corner and I spun it back and I pressed play and there was nothing in the tape. If you're going to sit in a room with a guy like Mike Jagger or a guy like Paul McCartney, two of the founding fathers of British rock and roll and world rock and roll music, you know, you should pay them the courtesy of knowing your stuff. So I always do my homework. Welcome to the How You Say It podcast with myself, Graham Kilgour podcast that dives into the depths of understanding communication in all walks of life. It's not just what you say, it's how you say it. Welcome back to the How You Say It podcast with myself, Graeme Kilgour, and I'm joined over Zoom with a Scottish music journalist who's had a career spanning more than four decades in the business, Billy Sloan. Billy, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm not that great with technology, but we, we we can see each other and we can hear each other, so that's a result. Well, through the wonders of Zoom, I mean, just, uh, you know, where would you have been f- over 40 years ago if you'd had this kind of technology to do some of the Absolute, interviews that you've Absolutely, had? yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I contacted you a couple of weeks ago. We, we discussed, you know, I sort of explained to you, I'd, I hadn't really... I'll be honest, I hadn't really listened to too much. My musical background, I don't really have much of an interest in music whatsoever, but I listened to a Scottish football show, Off the Ball, which is legendary in Scotland for uh, for its patter on the radio, and you were, uh, you were on there, and I heard some of the stories that you were talking about and some of the things that you said about your career, and I just found it absolutely fascinating, and it kind of backs up the... The old adage that if someone's a good storyteller, it doesn't really matter what they're telling a story about if you don't know much about it. But I was I was glued to my radio listening to that, and and I thought I have to try and get in touch with you to to connect and to try and get you on this podcast. So thank you very much for uh, for coming on. My pleasure. I'd just like to start really, as we've already kind of touched on. You said a career of forty five years. You've been in the music journalism business. So how did that all come about? How did that start for you? It kind of started, you know, um, the night that I went to my first ever gig. I went to my first ever gig on the 21st of October, 1971. I went to see The Who at Green's Playhouse in Glasgow. You know, that incredible building that used to stand right up at the top of Renfield Street, opposite where the pavilion uh, still remains. And, uh, you know, it sounds very dramatic, but it was a kind of life-changing moment. You know, you see my heroes... Uh, the Who, Pete Townsend, Roger Daltrey, John Entwistle and Keith Moon on that stage was just one of the most exciting things that's ever happened to me. You know, I mean, uh, I had queued out uh, a few months previously in Sucky Hall Street to buy tickets. I queued out overnight. I had to beg my old man. And I mean, beg my old man. He let me do it with my mates. And we joined the queue at six o'clock on the Saturday night and queued right through until nine o'clock on the Sunday morning until I, 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 an electrical store, which for some bizarre reason sold the tickets for the venue. They opened their doors at nine o'clock in the morning and then we were able to queue up and buy tickets. So, I mean, it was it was, it was was a life changer because, you know, on that night I decided that somehow I wanted to get involved in the music business. I would like to have been a swivel-hipped rock god like Roger <laughs> Daltrey or, or Robert Plant, but I think I was realistic enough to know that I didn't have the musical talent or the, or the good looks for that. So I thought, I'm going to try and get in through journalism. And, and and that's what I did, you know, but it didn't happen right away. You know, I had a variety of jobs, most notably I worked as a labourer in a building site. And I was making sort of pretty good money, you know, with all the overtime and, you know, working nights and, 
double time and treble time at weekends and stuff. I mean, I was coming up with about 70 quid a week in my hand when my mates were on, you know, 35, 40 quid a week. So I was, I was quite well off. But I wanted to get into journalism. It was just trying to find the, the, the way and the means to do that. And, and on spec, I wrote a letter to the editor of my local paper. My local paper was a paper called the Bishop Briggs and Springburn Times up in the north of Glasgow. And I wrote a letter to the editor saying, I noticed that you don't have a pop music column. I will write one for you for free as long as you put my name on it, you know, by Billy Sloan. Because I was thinking if I could build up a kind of portfolio of published articles, mm. if I ever then went for a job in a, in a proper newspaper, uh, you know, I would have something to, to show the editor, you know, and that would maybe get him to employ me. And it just... By sheer coincidence, it turned out she was a, a great lady called Nina Young, and it turned out that she was looking for somebody to cover the Springburn area, which is quite a you know tough working class area, which is where I lived, and uh, you know she was looking for somebody to cover that, and and she offered me the job. Wow! And the only the only downside of that was the wages were nineteen pounds a week, and I thought, how do I go from seventy quid a week to nineteen pounds a week? You know that was. That was, you know, less than a third of, of, of what I was earning. But I thought I might never get another chance. So I just bit the bullet. I had a few hundred quid in savings. Not much, but I had a few hundred quid in savings. And I just thought, you know, I'll bite the bullet. And I took the plunge. And it was the best career move that I ever made. You know, that that, that led to all of this. So it all started way back there, you know, around about 19, I think it was 76, I joined the, the Bishop Briggs and Springburn Times. And, you know, in a, in a quiet week in the paper, if you know we had a half page of 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 the edition that we'd nothing to put in, I would kind of, you know, rustle up a a pop column, you know, somebody that was coming to play in Glasgow, review a new album that had just came out, you know, a bit of information about you know some band or or, or what have you, which I could do fairly easily, and, and and that's how it started. It all started from that. Yeah, it's quite incredible, and and it's 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 fantastic to hear about you know you had a you had a a vision of saying I want to be in this industry, and then. You took the opportunity when it came along. I'm interested to find out, you know, the real reason we want to talk here because it's a podcast on communication and stuff like that is your interviewing uh, skills and the people that you've interviewed yeah. and what makes a good interview for you and how you go about doing it. But can you remember back to your first interview that you had to conduct for the newspaper or for another publication that you put out? Absolutely. You know, I mean, uh, I I joined, it was a very small office, you know, it was just uh, two rooms. And there was uh, another male reporter who covered Bishop Briggs, and I was uh, recruited to cover Springburn. And we had Nina Young, who was the editor, and a guy called Andy Patterson, who was the deputy editor. And then we had a, a woman who did all the office stuff called Isabel McGibbon. And then there was a woman who didn't work from the office. She was out in the out in the road, you know, selling adverts. She physically went round the local shops and the local businesses trying to sell adverts. But you know, when I arrived. On the first day, you know, with my shirt and tie, my suit on, you know, trying to look the part, it was just assumed that I could do the job. So literally within an hour of, of getting to the office, Nina Young had given me the address of a guy, you know, in Bishop Briggs who had won a £1,000 on a spot the ball contest. I think it was in the Evening Times or the Evening Citizen. And she gave me his name and address and I went up to his house with the photographer, knocked on his door... <laughs> And said, "Can I come in and interview you? And you can tell me, you know, what a thrill it was to win a thousand pounds. That was a lot of money then. 
and what you're going to spend the money on and and that kind of stuff. So I, I was thrown in at the deep end. You know, I mean, to be to become a journalist when you were a teenager, um, you could go to Napier College in Edinburgh, but I had kind of missed that. I was slightly too old for that. But I never had any formal training. Yeah. Uh, you know, I literally get taken up to the the top of the diving board, and somebody kicked me in the backside, and I I I, I plunged into the water below. It was a case of sink or swim. But you know, I, I'd seen, you know, people being interviewed in TV. You know, you'd seen the part the Parkinson show. You'd seen Russell Hart. You know, I know it's a very different thing. And you'd seen the news. So I kind of knew that it was a case of just asking the right questions at the right time and in the right order. And it was amazing how quickly you learned. I mean, of course, you made mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. And there were times when you kind of put your foot in it and said the wrong thing at the wrong time. But, you know, it was it was great kind of being out there, you know, learning, you know, on the job, if you like, because we never had any other option. You know, so as soon as I I finished talking to the guy about, you know, his, um, his £1,000 spot the ball contest winnings, you know, we came straight back to the office and within an hour, I was sitting at my typewriter writing the story up, and it was as fast as that. Yeah. And ba- basically, uh, you know, th- that's how it was. You know, it was just assumed you would be able to do it, and luckily, I had a bit of an aptitude for it. What do you think that was, Billy? I mean, you've gone from spot the ball uh, interviews to interviewing some of the biggest names, the biggest stars in the world yeah. in the music industry, which I'm sure we'll come on to. But it, it, uh, anyone could have just stayed in that environment in that local newspaper environment and carried on interviewing people who have won spot the ball or people who are upset because the bins haven't been taken away from the yeah, local council yeah. for a decade uh, for for days and days and days but you progressed and you carried on you carried and, and, on and, and there was a, there was a lot of that graham you know i mean you know bishop briggs is a fairly or it was then a fairly kind of affluent middle class area it was tory voting you know there was car, a car in the driveway you know, a uh, back and front door, a garden, you know, maybe two foreign holidays a, a week, a year rather, two foreign holidays a year. So it was quite an affluent area. So our deadline day for the uh, the paper, it was a Tuesday. It was Tuesday at 12 noon and every single bit of copy and advertising matter had to be in an envelope for 12 noon. And then I get dispatched from Bishop Briggs down to Queen Street Station to Red Star. There was a thing called Red Star. It was a kind of parcel service. And I had to send all the copy in this envelope up to a place in Arbroath where the paper was printed because the the, the owners of the, the chain of newspapers which owned the Bishop Briggs and Springburn Times were based in Arbroath. So every single thing had to be done and in that envelope by 12 noon and I would get the train down to Queen Street to then send it up to Arbroath. And it was, it was not unusual to come in on a Tuesday morning and have nothing for the front page, you know, just yeah. because, oh, nothing's happening. It's been a really quiet week. And we just had to sort of pluck a story out of thin air. Springburn was difficult because Springburn, only a mile down the road, was a real kind of tough, more working class, uh, rough and ready area. And um, I loved living there. It was a great place. It still is. And, uh, you know, as you said, you know, people would think nothing of phoning up the the guy at the the Springburn Times, which was me, and say, right, you know, they're getting rid of the lollipop man outside such and such a school. You're the local paper. What are you going to do about it? Or, you know, Mr. McGinty's, you know, got a hole in his roof and he's been complaining to the council for the last six months and he's got buckets down catching the water every time it rains. What are you going to do about it? So they would use their local paper as a kind of sword with which to fight authority. So uh, it really was like that. But, you know, you were saying how, how did it go from that till, you know, 
interviewing some of the biggest stars in the world. A, a lot of it was being in the, the right place at the light, right time, and a lot of it was down to sheer luck. I mean, I've been working for about um, maybe two or three years at the Bishop Brighton Springburn Times, and then um, I got a call from a group of people who were putting a magazine called Clyde Guide together for Radio Clyde. It was basically a bit like the Radio Clyde's version of the Radio Times. Mm. You know, it had all their, the, the the Radio Clyde program listings and, you know, they had interviews with the DJs and they had a lot of really high-profile DJs at the time, like Tiger Tim and Steve Jones and Richard Park and Doogie Donnelly and Paul, Paul Coyer, Bill Smith, Dave Marshall, Jim Walk, people like that. So I, I managed to get a job doing that and that lasted about, I think it was about a year or 18 months, I can't remember which, and then kind of, you know, it, it, it kind of went to the wall and then again, I was in the right place at the right time. Nina Young's husband, then husband, was a guy called Noel Young, and he was the deputy editor of the Sunday Mail. And they had a pop page every Sunday that was just kind of put together by a couple of stringers from London, a couple of middle-aged guys from London. But he wanted something that was a bit more kind of, you know, modern and up to the minute. You know, he wanted somebody who went to gigs, who bought records, who knew the difference between, you know, this band and that band. So he asked me if I would like to do the column, and suddenly, you know, I was I was writing a column for the biggest selling paper in 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 Scotland. I mean, in those days, the Sunday Mail was selling something like nine hundred thousand copies uh, every Sunday. Mm. Now, the way they calculate that is is that you know if if a guy buys a paper, his wife reads it, and maybe one of his kids reads it, maybe one of his other. So you know, for every paper sold, three point five people read it. So, you know, you were reaching a, a, a projected audience of something like 3 million people, which yeah. in a country with a population of only 5 million was most of the most of the population. So, you know, in the space of three, four years, I went from working in local papers to writing a column for the biggest selling paper in the country. And I'm interested to go back. You're, you're, you talked about how you had to convince your dad to get to, for you to be allowed to get tickets for that Who concert. When you were, you said you were a wee bit older than the sort of teenage years where you'd passed, yeah. missed, missed the sort of Napier University days and stuff like that. But uh -huh. what was it like trying to convince? Was did you? Was there any convincing you had to do? People like your parents or your friends or your colleagues or even any people that you were with to say that you were taking this opportunity to go from earning all the money that you were earning as a labourer to then working for this local newspaper, earning what you were earning, uh, going from what you were earning to what you were earning with the, at the paper. No, I mean, you know, your 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 mum and dad, like everybody's mum and dad, want you to get a good job, and that you know, in those days, get a job working in the bank or get a job, you know, working in an office as an accountant or something like that. But that that never interested me. Mm. You know, they, they they just were anxious that you got a job doing something that they thought was worthwhile. So when I suddenly announced that I wanted to get into journalism, that you know ticked a box, yeah. and and they were quite happy with that. But in those days, it was it was difficult to get in because. Um, you know, you had to be you had to be a member of the National Union of Journalists and have a union card to work for a paper. But to, to get a union card, you have to have a, you had to have an offer of a job. Hmm. So because I worked for the Bishop Briggs and Springburn Times, they were a little local paper, and they weren't that stringent enough about you know union membership. But once I joined the, the Bishop Briggs and Springburn Times within a short period. You know, I applied for union membership, and I got the I got the the coveted union card, which theoretically meant I could go and work for any newspaper in the country. But you know, in terms of in terms of you know 
the money. I mean, you know, as I say, I was earning 70 quid a week. And when I when I went to the Bishop Briggs Times, I got nineteen pounds a week, and I was allowed to take one pound fifty from the petty cash for bus fares <laughs> to go to jobs. You know, and and a Saturday I would go around all the local councillors. They would have their surgeries every Saturday morning, and I would go around all the local councillors. There was Charlie Moore for Cowlairs, and there was uh, uh, John Chatham for uh, Burmulloch, and then there was a guy called Michael Martin, who who was from for Springburn. And he went on to become the MP for Springburn, and then went on to become the Speaker of the the House of Commons. You know, he was uh, he was uh, Baron Martin of uh, I don't know mm. what he, he ended up in the House of Lords. He, he sadly passed away now, but you know, I get my bus fares to go around all these guys every Saturday morning to see what stories they had. But you know, when I got the nineteen pound, you got it in a little brown envelope and with your name on it, and when you opened it up. You get the whole nineteen pound. You know there was nothing taken off for national insurance or stamp or any of that kind of stuff. It, it was it was so low the wages that you were under a threshold for yeah. getting you know making any kind of you know a government contribution. So I got the whole nineteen pound, and it was tough. I'm I'm not going to lie. You know as as, as I said, I had a few hundred pounds up my sleeve, but that didn't last very long. And you know you, you just cut your cloth to fit. And I was always thinking that this might lead to other things. I mean, I mentioned a moment ago that, you know, I um, uh, I got a job, you know, doing the column for the Sunday Mail. And that time you get paid one shift and one shift was £120. So there was six times what I was making yeah. when I was at the bit. And also, and you'll, you, you'll find this hard to believe, but it's absolutely true. Uh, you know, later on, when I was working for the Sunday Mail and I also got a job in Radio Clyde, I was getting paid 120 quid a shift for doing the column in the Sunday Mail. And I was getting paid, let me think, 25 quid for doing my programme on a Thursday night in Radio Clyde. So that was a total of £145 a week, which was quite a significant sum. Mm. But I was also on the dole. Because, uh, you know, when you when you go to sign on the dole, you have to make yourself available to work on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Sunday doesn't count. And I did my column and I did the radio show on a Thursday. So I would go to the dole and say, um, you know, the guy would say, have you done any work this week? And I said, yeah, I did a bit of work on Thursday. So they would just <laughs> score Thursday off. And I would get paid dole money for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday and Saturday. So I would be in the local dole office in Springburn. And it was all totally legitimate and yeah. above board. And I'd be queuing up there. And all the troops would be going, nah, that's that's that guy from the paper, no, that's that's him after Johnny. What's he doing here? That? And it was it was it was absolutely I was entitled to the money. Of course. And that was that was how it worked. So, you know, I am a kind of cheap date, you know. I'm I'm really into, you know, Armani suits and flash cars and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I went from seventy quid a week to nineteen quid a week. It was tough, but yeah. I always knew that, you know, if I was able to sort of bite the bullet and, um, you know, go with that, it would lead to something better. And that's exactly what happened. So uh, I'm interested in, you've gone from this local newspaper and then you're in the Sunday Mail and then you're at Radio Clyde. Obviously, when you have the Sunday Mail and Radio Clyde behind you, it's a lot easier to go out and get 
get interviews with people they'll be probably setting some interviews up i'd imagine with you before you, yeah. you create those contacts but before that were you still going to gigs were you still get trying to get access backstage to still try and interview with bands and talk to bands and musicians and things like that to to keep interviewing and to keep growing that profile yeah i mean that started with clay guide really because um you know in those days the papers didn't really have a dedicated music column or pop column, for want of a better term. So when I was at Clyde Guide, I would physically hoof it round all the all the university venues, Strathclyde University in John Street, the Queen Margaret Union up in the west end of Glasgow, Glasgow University at the bottom of Gibson Street, and just sort of talk to the social secretaries, what was coming up, you know, who was available for interview and that kind of thing. And, you know, I used to make up the listings and stuff, so... I was kind of the first guy who did that. So mm. when I then went on to work for the Sunday Mail, I'd already been doing that for a couple of years, you know, with my Clyde Guide hat on. And, you know, the, as I said earlier, you know, the Sunday Mail selling something like 900,000 copies every Sunday, that had quite a a big reach, as I explained. So, you know, a lot of the record companies would, you know, phone up and say, you know, we've got such and such as bringing an album out, you know, would you like to talk to them? Because even a little mention in the column in the Sunday Mail for a gig or for an album, you know, that would sell records or it would sell concert tickets. So, you know, the Sunday Mail had quite a, mm. a good reputation for that, as did Radio Clyde. You know, I, I started in Radio Clyde really in 1979 and I did a programme on a Thursday night from midnight until two o'clock in the morning. And I mean, all I was, I didn't know anything at all about presenting a a radio program. I thought I knew what made a good radio program in terms of the music choices, but I just really basically sat and played a bunch of my favourite records and thought, I really love these records. Maybe if I like them, somebody else will like them. And it was as basic as that. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't any kind of grand plan of about, you know, how I was going to structure the show. I just sort of sat and played the records. And in those days, you know, you had John Peel in, in Radio 1 in London, obviously, but there was nobody in Scotland playing... Simple Minds, U2, The Associates, Orange Juice, Aztec Camera, Joseph K, The Skids, um, you know, Susie and the Banshees, all those kind of people. So, you know, I was suddenly the, the one-stop shop on a Thursday night. Now, I, I was almost going to say I, I would love to hear some of those early tapes. I, I probably would be horrified if I heard them. <laughs> I, I, I guess I would probably have ummed and ad my way for a whole two hours all the way through the the program but you know while I wasn't the sort of polished radio presenter I um I you know I was passionate about what I was doing and people realized I was passionate about what I was doing so you know um we had a big audience because it was the only show in town yeah and uh, you know people still talk about that show to this very day I mean you know I used to get demo cassettes and so I played Lloyd Cole, I played Hue and Cry, I played The Proclaimers, I played The Trash Can Sinatras, uh, I played Ricky Ross of Deacon Blues, first demos, you know, long before anybody had ever heard of them. So, you know, and everybody used to think I was sitting like some kind of rock and roll mystic Meg, like some clairvoyant sitting looking into my crystal ball and saying, <laughs> I'm going to make these guys a star. I, I, I wish I'd had that power, but it was nothing like that, you know. It was nothing as skilled or as calculated as that. It was just a case of, I played a record. I think this is a great record. I really like it. Maybe you'll like it as well. I hope you do. And and, and that's how it worked. That's exactly how it worked. 
Well, I mean, Glasgow is, you know, still does to this day have quite a reputation for musicians, for bands, particularly those that you know, there's so many stories of bands that have come into Glasgow. And this is my limited knowledge of of music, so please excuse me on this. But from what I do know is there have been so many examples of bands that have come up to Glasgow and they've really enjoyed it. And it's got that kind of partisan atmosphere and things like that. And for for bands starting out as well, in particular, it's it is kind of like a launching place for them. Take me backstage, Billy. What's it like when you're in these environments, particularly through the seventies and into the eighties? And you've got to go back. To, was it a was it a little tape recorder that you would have to take backstage? Yeah. With you? So you're like you've got a gig, maybe a band's just is it before or after? What would the situation? What would the circumstances be like when you? It, 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 it would really depend. I mean, you know, when I, when I was at school, you know, in my last days at school, um, I took something called uh, secretarial studies and office practice. Now, what that basically was, was typing and, you know, office practice. Now, you can imagine the reaction from the troops in the class <laughs> when I suddenly said I was going to two periods of typing and they were going to two periods of football or something like that. I mean, the the stick I got, you know, could not be replicated in a good family podcast like this one. I mean, the <laughs> language was unbelievable. But, you know, the, the good thing about it was I was sitting in a class, you know, in the middle of winter when they were up the park, you know, playing football in the freezing cold, you know, rain and snow. I was sitting in a class with 30 pretty girls, so it kind of softened the blow a little bit. <laughs> but basically, I did that with a view to thinking I want to get into journalism because, mm. you know, I took typing, I can touch type, I can uh, display type, and, and my typing speed was, was superior to, um, you know, a lot of the girls in the class. I've still got a pretty good typing speed. You know, if the worst ever came to the absolute worst, I don't know if anybody employs typists anymore, but I could get a job as a typist. I'm I'm pretty good. When I was a, when I worked in the building site, I enrolled in Strathclyde University in a shorthand course, and I went to night classes. I think it was twice a week. I went to night classes to learn how to do shorthand, thinking that that would be handy and I was going to need that. But I I couldn't really cut it to be honest. I I I couldn't really hack it because it was a bit too much like getting back to school. Mm. And uh, I, I, I never really sort of got to grips with it. So, you know, tape machines were the, the you know, the, the, the next best thing. So you would go along with your little tape machine. I would have a little cassette recorder and just press play and record, you know. And sometimes you would go and interview a band at the sound check in the afternoon or more often than not, you would interview them after the show, you know, when they were a bit more relaxed and they got the, the show out of the way. But... Uh, that that's how it worked, you know. When when I started in nineteen seventy nine, I think the first big star interview I did was uh, Chrysalis Records took me to Hamburg in Germany to interview the uh, Irish guitar legend Rory Gallagher, mm. and I'd never even been abroad. I had to apply for a passport, <laughs> and they took me to uh, they took me to Hamburg and interviewed one of the greatest guitar players mm. in the history of rock. So that was probably the first, you know, big interview that I remember pressing play and record. And, and that happening. So, you know, tape recorders are great because it's a great record of, of the interview. The, the problem that you have with that is you've got to come back and transcribe the tape and then kind of knock it into some kind of shape, which is quite time-consuming. There's not really a quick way of doing that, but, you know, that's how everybody does yeah. it now. You know, you just t- tape the conversation and, and that's what you have as a backup, you know, that, so that, you know, if somebody then talks, I never said that in the interview, you say, well, actually you did, uh-huh. and you can play the tape back. So, you know, th- that that was how it worked. It was just a case of recording the conversation. I mean, I've been on a few occasions where 
uh, thankfully, maybe only four or five in my whole period of of time as a music journalist, where you get out of an interview. I remember I went to interview, I think it was Fish of Marillion once at the EMI Records headquarters in Manchester Square in London. And I get out of the interview after about an hour and I walked around the corner and I spun it back and I pressed play and there was nothing in the oh, tape. No. I had I, I'd done something wrong and the tape was completely blank. So what you then had to do was I had to go around the corner to a cafe and sit in the cafe with, just with my notebook and try and unload my brain onto the pages of my, my notebook and try and remember, you know, what he said. But, you know, obviously you never got anywhere near the accuracy that you would have had done if it had been a, a tape machine. I was once interviewing Paul McCartney, uh, I think it was maybe the first time, and I was so kind of in awe and nervous about sitting opposite the guy from the Beatles that for the first two questions, I didn't have the tape machine switched on. <laughs> and, and and I looked in the, in the wee cogs one to get around and I just about had a heart attack and then I had to switch on and he kind of spotted me doing it and he went, are you okay? And I went, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine, but he kind of knew that... Um, that I'd missed the first couple of questions. So, you know, thankfully, touch with times like that were few and far between. I, I'm interested to, you, you talked about the lessons that you had to learn and you had to learn them quick when you were on the job um, back at back in your days at the local newspaper and stuff. Is there, What's the sort of harshest lesson you've you've mentioned about making sure you remember the, the, the you know, that you're pressing record or that things are working, but when it comes to actually, when you're doing an interview with somebody, what was? Can you remember what was the quickest or harshest lesson that you had to learn when you're going into somebody else's environment? You mentioned about going down to record companies, you're behind, you're backstage, or even going into somebody's house. You're in that person's own space, and I yeah. personally find that that could be straight away from an interviewing prospect. You're almost on the back foot because you're in their domain, their environment. So when it comes to trying to get the best out of them. Was there any key lessons that you learned early on in your career that really helped you and propelled you into being able to continue to do these interviews and, and get the yeah, best I mean, out of them? I, I, I think the, the, the big lesson, which I still employ to this day, is to, and it, and it sounds so basic that, it, you know, it's, it's and so obvious that, you know, it, it, it's amazing that I'm even saying it, but I think the thing is that you just do your homework. Mm -hmm. You know, because if you're going to begin into a room with an artist of the stature of Mick Jagger, or Paul McCartney, or Bruce Springsteen, or Elton John, or David Bowie, or Rod Stewart, or Diana Ross, or Dolly Parton, or Neil Diamond, or Michael Stipe of R.E.M., or Bono of U2. You know, you better know your stuff, because, you know, these guys are professionals. You know, they're used to dealing with professional people who act in, uh, act in a, a professional and responsible manner. So if you go in there and you're trying to busk it, very, very quickly, they're going to spot that, you know, A, you don't know what you're talking about, and B, um, y y you're ill-equipped to do uh, the, the interview kind of thing. And not only is that kind of, not only do you leave yourself really wide open by, by uh, not doing your homework, but it's really kind of unprofessional. You know, if you're going to sit in a room with a guy like Mike Jagger or a guy like Paul McCartney, two of the founding fathers of British rock and roll and world rock and roll music, you know, you should pay them the courtesy of knowing your stuff. So I always do my homework, always, without fail. I mean, probably the guy who I've interviewed more than any other person is Jim Kerr of Simple Minds. Mm. Now, now, Jim Kerr is one of my closest friends in the world. We've been in each other's houses. We've been on holiday together. We've been out for dinner. I was friendly with his late mother and father. You know, 
he's one of my closest friends in the whole world, right? I probably know more about Simple Minds than he does. <laughs> but every time I interview him, and I, I, I did it quite recently, I'm sitting up until one or two o'clock in the morning with all my notes and, and you know, getting all my dates and times and names and places because, you know, I afford him the same level of respect and courtesy that I would afford somebody that I was interviewing for the first time. Mm. And you don't want you don't want to go into a room with Mick Jagger or, or David Bowie or, or or Paul McCartney and no know your stuff because they will spot it a mile away. And 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 the, you end up starting to flounder. Mm. And you know and you can get a situation and I'm not talking about these three guys particularly where you say, you know, what about that time you said such and such? And he'll say, I didn't say that. And you say, well yeah you did. You said it in the New Musical Express and 1979 and you've got to be able to sort of you know be armed to the teeth of uh you know with, with your information and your facts because if they say i didn't say that you've got to say well i can contradict yeah. you and say that here, here's the evidence and and you know i, I take your point about getting into, into their space uh, you know you, you, you a lot of the time you're going into a a, a room in a hotel room which mm. is their suite, or you're going into a room in a record company. So you're going into their environment. So all the more reason why you've got to be prepared. I mean, I would never, ever, ever go into a, an interview where I, I, I didn't have all the facts and fingers at my uh, facts and figures at my fingertips. I mean, two of the two of the career highlights for me have been I hosted um, two events: one at the Armadillo in Glasgow in 2015 and one uh, a hotel in London in March of 2023, uh, the Intercontinental Hotel in London, and it, and it was an evening with Al Pacino, the actor who played Michael Corleone in The Godfather. And the 2015 one at the Armadillo, which was the first one, I get quite nervous before an mm. interview, um, particularly a radio interview. But this was an interview on, on stage in front of 3,500 people who had spent a minimum of 150 quid a ticket. And I didn't want people who'd spent 150 quid a ticket to say Pacino was great, but the guy who was talking to him didn't know what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. So I spent 10 weeks sitting up to 3 o'clock in the morning every night, seven nights a week, watching all the movies, you know, uh, Panic in Needle Park, Serpico, uh, Donnie Brasco, Center of a Woman, Carlito's Way, the three Godfather movies. I watched them all. I read up extensively in Pacino. So by the time I got to meet Pacino um, in 2015, I could probably have gone on Mastermind with Al Pacino as a specialist subject, and I would have got a good mark. Yeah. I, I knew that much about him. And then I did them recently in 2023. It was a, it was a dinner for um, 2,200 people at the Inter Intercontinental Hotel in London. And it was a bit easier the second time because they remembered me and, you know, we had a bit of a relationship. But, you know, you can't sit on a stage with Michael Corleone and no-know your stuff yeah. because it's not only insulting to him, but it's insulting to the people who spent a lot of money buying tickets to hear what the great man's got to say. So, uh, you know, on both occasions, uh, the interviews couldn't have gone any better. And um, he, he really responded to me. And there was a few times where, you know, he said, oh, you know, I, I love your questions. You know, you really keep me on my toes and and that kind of stuff. And and, and that's what it's about. I mean, because a, a good interview should just be like a conversation like you and I are having at the moment that you allow you allow people to kind of eavesdrop on. It should just be a, a chat between two pals, 
you know, in which you can uh, get information from. You know, it shouldn't be a formal, you know, speak your weight machine. Tell me, Graham, you know, what do you think of such and such? And you answer it, and then I tell me, Graham, what do you think? It should be a bit more kind of relaxing that. And, and, and there's times when it can go totally wrong. I mean, I remember I was in 2006, I went to interview the Rolling Stones in Porto in Portugal. They were playing uh, the, the football ground of Porto FC mm. on their Bigger Bang tour and it was like it was a dream job we, we got 20 minutes with Mick Jagger uh, Keith Richards Charlie Watts and uh, Ronnie Wood now of the four of them you probably want to do Charlie Watts God rest him number three because of the four of them he's probably the the shyest guy and 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 not not as good a talker mm. as the other three are but just the way the, the cards were dealt Charlie Watts was the first interview and I thought, right, there's nothing we can do about it. We just need to do him first. So he was brought into the room. He sat down. He's a pretty sort of laid-back, reserved kind of guy. And I said, Charlie Watts, it's, it's a great pleasure to talk to you. Welcome to Radio Clyde. I was doing it for Radio Clyde. And um, I said, you know, you, you're on the bigger bang, a Bigger Bang Tour, which was the name of the tour uh, that they were on at that time. You know, you've done so many great tours over the years. What makes this tour different? You know, what, what makes this tour different from what's gone before? And he kind of went, well, you know, I, I don't really know. You know, I don't know what I, what I would say about that. I don't really know how I would answer that. Well, um, I don't really know how, what would make it different from what's gone before. I guess what would make it different would be that this is the first tour I've done since I recovered from throat cancer. Now, I'm going to ask him about throat cancer, mm. but that's like question number 12. I'm going to kind of build up to it. But as soon as he introduced it, I had to leapfrog 11 questions and go straight in because I can't then start talking to him about other things. And then 15 minutes later, I go, right, tell me about, you know, what happened when you broke out. So he introduced it and I had to sort of, um, you know, I had a sort of rough, sort of, you know, game plan for where I wanted the interview to go. But as soon as he introduced that right away, we just had to go in yeah. and focus on the throat cancer. And, you know, he told me some incredible stuff, how he'd gone to the hospital and as soon as he heard the C word, he thought, this is that I'm going to die. And, you know, he thought that that, that was the end of the road for him. And and luckily he survived that. Sadly, it caught up with him a few years later. But, you know, during an interview, you've got to kind of react to mm. what's happening during the interview. I mean, I can go into an interview with a rough kind of route map of where I would like to start and where I would like the interview to go and where it would end up. But a lot of the times when you're halfway through the interview, depending on what they say or what they don't say, you've got to sort of cut your cloth to fit and, you know, adjust the direction that you're heading in to accommodate, you know, what, what, what the other person is saying. I think you're, it, it, it's true. I think when I see a lot of interviews or, or listen to people who you know have done it for years and years and years, and I'm still learning myself, it's there's nothing worse than when someone says, oh, oh you've already asked answered my next two questions in the, in the yeah. last answer. And I think being too structured and keeping yourself with too many boundaries to the list of questions that you have. So you've got to let it flow. And it's interesting you're talking there about when you have a situation where you've got 20 minutes with a person. Yeah. And you've got to try and get something out of that 20 minutes. Now, I'm sure in your career as well, you've not been the only person that's been interviewing that, partic that particular person that day. So it might just be a case of it's your 20 minutes. And then yeah. you've had somebody else has been 20 minutes before you and somebody else will be 20 minutes after you. And I can probably imagine for some of these, you know, that people often talk about, oh, 
such a shame for these precious superstars. They've got to sit for a whole day on the money that they're getting, answering questions so their fans can hear about them. But I could still imagine it's a long day if you're sitting there and particularly having to answer the exact same type of questions. So the kind of double-edged question I've got for you here is, first of all, what kind of things can someone do where if you have tw- just a limited period of time and you've got to try and get as much out of that person as possible and you've maybe never even met that person before, how how can you go about, or how can somebody who's maybe listening to this go about doing that? And then secondly as well is, has there ever been a situation where you've walked into a room and you know that that person just, they can't be bothered with you being there and you know you've got 20 minutes to try and get get information out of them and try and make your interview stand out or be a little bit different from the other ones that they've had and the other ones that they'll have for the rest of the day? Let, let's take the second part of that first then. I, I remember, um, you know, um, and, and I mentioned it in my book, um, uh, I went to interview Liza Minnelli, you know, who's probably one of the last of that kind of breed of Hollywood star, you know, the daughter of Judy Garland and, and film director Vincent Minnelli. And I went to interview her at the Savoy Hotel in London, which is quite intimidating in itself, walking into such a grand place as, as that uh, hotel in the Strand. And um, I was kind of the 12th interview of that day. I think she was um, she was promoting an album called, I think it was uh, Results, that she'd recorded with the Pet Shop Boys. It's a great record. And the problem is, is that if you're 12, number 12 of 12 interviews that day, you know, as you quite rightly say, you know, she's being asked about the album. So, you know, obviously there's going to be a few questions in there that she's been asked 11 times previously before you get to her. And um, it's never a good sort of position to be in. You know, the last interview of the day, she's been sitting there for hours. She's been asked all these questions over and over again. She just really wants to go away and go for dinner or go with friends or something like that. But you've got to get something out of her. So what I did was, you know, you know, you're Scottish, so you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, when you go to visit somebody, you take them a wee box of sweets or you take them a bottle of wine or you take them something. I went to Harrods and uh, they had a great cookie shop in Harrods and I bought her a box of cookies and I got her to put the lovely Harrods red ribbon around them. Mm. And I walked into the, the, the suite and there she was, Liza Minnelli, you know, larger than life. And I said, Liza, I says, I'm from Scotland. I says, and when you go visiting somebody, you don't go empty-handed. I said, so I bought you a box of cookies. I said, and you can get anyone you like in the box apart from the oatmeal and raisin. That's mine. I said, so put the kettle on. We're going to have a cup of tea and some cookies. And she was, ah! <laughs> she was screaming the play. And that kind of broke the ice a wee bit, you know, because it was a little bit different. I'm sure that the 11 previous guys hadn't done that. And I got on great with her, you know, to such an extent that I was told not to ask her about our mother, Judy Garland, but we were getting on so well that I just thought, you know, I can go for it here. And, and I said, you know, you, you, you're the daughter of a very famous, legendary Hollywood mother. You know, how do you think, you know, what do you think your mother would have thought of the incredible success you've had, you know, winning an Oscar for Cabaret and touring concert venues around the world and making records and touring with Frank Sinatra and all that kind of stuff. And, and she answered the question, you know, she just said, my mum my would have been really proud of me and I hope she would have been happy that I was successful. And so you, you just get, you know, another time I went to interview Celine Dion in, um, in New Orleans. And again, I was doing my homework and part of that involved looking up clips of Celine Dion in YouTube. And I saw a press conference where halfway through the press conference, she talked about coming to Scotland and she went, oh, I love Scotland. It was great. I had a great time there. It's such a beautiful place. And I stayed in this lovely hotel in Glasgow and they had these incredible homemade butter cookies. 
and I just became addicted to the butter cookies. Now, what she meant was shortbread. Right. She was talking about shortbread. So I found out, I did a bit of detective work and found out that she was living in a, when she came to Glasgow, she lived in a, a, a boutique hotel in the west end of Glasgow called One Devonshire Gardens. So I went across to the manager and I said, look, I'm going to interview Celine Dion in a couple of weeks in, in New Orleans. She was raving about these butter cookies. What she's actually mm. talking about is shortbread. That, ah, yeah, my, my chef makes his own shortbread. I said, would there be any possibility that he could make me a little box up and I can take them to her? So they made me this lovely box of shortbread and they put a lovely ribbon around it. And I, I don't know how I managed to get it all the way from Glasgow <laughs> to Heathrow to New Orleans without being smashed to smithereens. But I walked into the 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 the, the dressing room of the the Houston Superdome, seventy five thousand capacity, Houston Superdome. Eh, no, Houston Superdome, New Orleans Superdome. My mistake. In, uh, in New Orleans, and I said, you know, I hear you like butter cookies. I brought you some. And she, she opened the box there and then, and we start eating shortbread, doing the interviews. So you can kind of do things yeah. like that, which can, which can, um, you know, sort of make it a little easier. What was the first part of the question? Well, you you've, kind, you've kind of answered both in the sense about when you've only got that 20-minute period. But you've only got 20 minutes. I mean, with, with David Bowie, you know, I interviewed him seven times. And on most of those occasions, you only got like five minutes, and it was five minutes. Mm. And you know, you've just got to steam in. Now, five minutes doesn't sound a lot, but five minutes is five good questions, and five good questions is five good answers. So it's really up to me to come up with five good questions that I think is going to kind of, you know, um, stimulate him. You know, to give me a great answer back. And touch wood, luckily. Of all the times I've ever interviewed him, I don't think I came away thinking, oh, that was a waste of time. You know, we always get something from him. Always get something from him. And uh, and I had a really good relationship with him. You know, he, he kind of knew me and we talked a lot over the years. And uh, as I say, interviewed him uh, six times face-to-face and once on the phone. Mm. I mean, I mean, um, when I interviewed him on the phone, that was probably the best one. I got 15 minutes with him. And he just brought out an album called Reality. And in the lyrics of reality, there was a lot of references to New York, which had become his adopted home. He moved over there and lived a very normal life in in, in a flat in an apartment called uh, in, in Lafayette Street in Soho mm-hmm. in Lower Manhattan. And uh, I said, you know, so you know, you you've really embraced New York. How how did it feel? How did you feel when you know your adopted home came under? you know, terrorist attack, you know, in in nine eleven. And he said, Well, I was in a I was in a hotel, I was in a recording studio in upstate New York working in a record. He says and a man, his wife phoned him. And he said that the reason that they bought the apartment was that one of the reasons that they bought the apartment was that the the um the kitchen window looked right straight into the Twin Towers. They had an uninterrupted view of the Twin Towers. And the man, his wife, phoned him and said, you know, I've just seen a plane going to the Twin Towers. And while he was talking to her, the second plane went into the second tower. And at that time, their daughter was only a, a little toddler, Alexandra. And he said, look, get some clothes, get the pram, get the baby, get out of there. We're under attack. We're under attack. Yeah. So, you know, just you know, things like that, very unexpected, uh, just kind of land in your lap. But... You, you've just got to steam in and get it done. I, I did another great interview once with Gary Newman. He was appearing at um, he was appearing at the Queen Margaret Union on some tour. I can't even remember what it was. It was just a sort of 
fairly ordinary interview to get a a, a, a few quotes for the column, my, my my weekly column, and then and then <clears throat> and then he started talking about what what a difference having a family had made to him, because he married a girl who's in his fan club, they're still married to this day, and they tried to have a start a family and it hadn't quite worked, and then I think they went down the IVF route. Mm. And suddenly, bingo! They they, they 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 hit gold, and they had a baby daughter. And then, you know, a couple of years after that, they had another baby daughter. And he talked about how, um, you know, what a difference that had made to his life, and having these two little, you know, beautiful little daughters in his life, you know. And and it was the most heartwarming interview I, I've done in a long time. And I said to him at the end of it, I said, you know, I, I really wasn't expecting this, Gary. You know, you've spoken about your your wife and your daughter in the most loving way, you know, do you have a photograph of your daughters and your wife that you would be happy to share with us? You know, because a lot of them mm -hmm. like to keep that kind of thing private. And he went, yeah, I've got a couple of pictures I'd be I'd be happy for you to use. So I gave him the, 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 the picture editor's email address and said goodbye, never thinking I'd hear from him ever again. And about 20 minutes later, the picture editor shouted me over and he said, um, I've got an email from Gary Newman here with four pictures of him, you know, larking about with his daughters and rolling about in the carpet with his girls and going out a walk with. And it was it was one of the best uh, stories we ever did in the paper, just because it was so unexpected. So it's things like that happen, but you know, when you've only got a short period of time, and, and most of these guys, you know, how many times has Paul McCartney been asked about George Harrison and John Lennon? How yeah. many times has he been asked about the Beatles? How many times has he been asked about you know? splitting for the Beatles and forming wings. How many times has he been asked, is yesterday's greatest song or has he still got to write his greatest song? You know, he's probably been asked, every single question I've probably asked him, 2,000 other journalists have probably asked him the same question, but he's so professional that he always makes it yeah. sound as if he's being asked it for the first time. And that's the skill on his part. And the skill on your part is to try and sort of pitch it to him as if you're asking them that question for the first time. So it's a bit of a kind of two-way street. It, it always works out. I mean, there are very few interviews where you come out thinking, Christ, what was what was that all about? I'm not going to get a line out of this. It's uh, the guy was as dull as dishwater or I didn't ask him the right questions or something. Um, but, you know, for every one of them, you've got a Rod Stewart or an Elton John or a Mick Jagger or a Paul McCartney or a Dolly Parton or a Bruce Springsteen. So it kind of balances the books quite a bit. I mean, it sounds to me, and it sounds very difficult to have to try and do. But I mean, is there an element of trying to build build a rapport with uh with somebody who you're having an interview with in advance of the interview, or even during the interview? But in five minutes, that must be such a difficult way to do it. So, is there any skills, techniques, and all that body language? We've talked about that on this show quite a lot of times about. You know, if someone walks into a room looking miserable, it's going to have an effect on the people that are around yeah. them. Or I mean, I mean, if you if you if you walk in and you're aggressive or you're kind of, you know, and you don't ask the tough questions right away, you know, I mean, we interviewed Johnny Cash once, and uh, you know, he was going to talk about you know the time he'd spent in the Betty Ford clinic, you know, where he'd been popping pills and drinking two bottles of bourbon a day, and you know, and beating his wife up and all that kind of stuff, and he went into the Betty Ford clinic to try and sort himself out. Now, he was prepared to talk about all of that. So you don't walk in right at the start and go, right, tell me about what happened to you when you were in the Betty Ford clinic. You know, you kind of work your way up to it. And also, um, you know, in, in terms of having a rapport, I mean, I've I've interviewed people like, I mean, Bowie, you know, God rest him, you know, he, he knew me 
And, you know, so we had a bit of a rapport. You know, Alice Cooper, I've had Alice Cooper on my radio show about four or five times, <laughs> and I got on great with him, the same with John Lydon of the Sex Pistols and, and Public Image Limited. You know, people that over the years you built up a relationship with, like the guy from Spandau Ballet or Duran Duran or Boy George or Simple Minds or all the Scottish bands, you know, Deacon Blue, uh, you know, um, pe people like that. So sometimes you've already got a rapport. You know, they know you and you mm. know them. I mean, a, a good example of that is Lulu. Lulu's become quite a good pal of mine. And, you know, I've interviewed her loads of times and she always says, you know, I'll always interview, be interviewed by you because it's always a pleasure and you always know what you're talking about. Rod Stewart's another another one, you know, I asked him for a quote from a book and he said, you know, you've uh, I've known you for years and you've always done me proud. Mm. I owe you. That, that was said, I owe you, you know, so, uh, you know, so, so, and you can only do that through time and through treating people professionally and uh, in, in a good way. Now, I'm not suggesting for a second that you've always got to, you know, be nice to them and and uh, not be critical of them. You know, I've been critical of loads of people over the years if I thought it was it was justified. But you know, you do build up a rapport with people. And you know, I mean, if I was interviewing Rod Stewart later this week, for instance, you know, he would be pleased to see me. And you know, he knows me. And you know, we've done loads of stuff over the years. So um, you know, it wouldn't be like he was being asked questions by somebody who's a total stranger, you know, Bono from U2 gave me a lovely quote from a book. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we got it at the very last minute. And that's simply because, you know, I interviewed him for the first time way back in 1981 when U2 played at Strathclyde University and I interviewed him after the show in the gents toilet <laughs> in level five of Strathclyde University, simply because it was the only place quiet and echoey enough that we could get to do a radio interview. And I've had a great relationship mm -hmm. with the guys in U2 over the years, you know, a great personal relationship with them. They've uh, always welcomed me into the U2 inner circle. And, um, you know, as I say, when uh, we were putting the finishing stages of my book together uh, that just came out in, in, in September, we were quite literally ready to press the button and go to the printers. And at the very last minute, you know, I didn't think we would get it because, of course, U2 have just started this their first ever residency in the sphere in yeah. Las Vegas. So they were locked away on a sound stage rehearsing for that, you know, with the do not disturb sign on the door. But Bono still found 10 minutes God, to clear a space and go and write me a little message from my book. And I, I could tell that it was him that wrote it, but it wasn't a case of, you know, some PR person had written it and said, you know, can I stick your name on this? Can I stick your name on this? I can tell by the language that he used that it was him that actually wrote it. Now, this guy's the lead singer in one of the biggest bands, if not the biggest band in the world at the moment, yet he still found 10 minutes to write a little message that I could put on the front of my book. And, uh, you know, that only that only comes from years of building a relationship and and uh, earning the trust of, of of people of that stature. And, and the other thing I would say as well, Graham, is, is that, you know, a lot of these big stars, at the end of the day, they're just guys. Mm -hmm. You know, they're surrounded by managers and security people and promo people and publicists and stylists and, you know, minders and all that kind of stuff. And and, and it's those people that cause the problems. If you can actually get to the guy or, or, the, or the female, whoever it is, you know, they're, they're just people. And as long as you sort of treat, treat them with respect and treat them in a professional manner, they will respond to that. But if you go in there and you don't know what you're talking about and you're flipping and you're kind of... um 
uh, you know, just no acting in a professional manner. You ain't going to get anywhere. You know, you ain't going to get anything decent in the interview, and you certainly ain't going to build up any kind of relationship with them. Billy, I have to say, <clears throat> I've got a couple more questions, but I just have to say, I, I mean, I'm pinching myself hearing some of the stories that you're you're telling me. It must you must be immensely proud to have been able to achieve that. I mean, you're talking about Bono and you know, seeing the the sphere stuff, and it's not just Bono; it's all the other people as well. The names yeah. that you've mentioned to to where you've started. Uh, in your career and to where you've where you've where you've come from and to what you've got, it, it must be an immensely, it must be immensely proud for you to be able to sit there and think you know someone's going to personally Bono's going to personally write you a note for your book and people are personally going to say thank you for the work that you've done for them as a and you're you're doing your job just to just to interview them for for somebody who just decided I want to get involved in in being a uh, I want to be involved in the music industry to have had what you've had it must be a, a hugely proud moment for you. It is because, you know, as I say in my book, you know, my book, it's called One Love, One Life. Mm. And apart from my family, it is what my one love and my one life, you know, was music. And, um, you know, to have people of the stature of, you know, Jim Kerr has written the foreword of the book mm. and Bono's written a message. We use a little bit of it in the front, but we use the full quote inside. We have quotes from Rod Stewart, from Paul Buchanan of the Blue Nile, from Peter Capaldi, the musician and the actor who was in the thick of it mm. and he was Doctor Who of course we've got Fran Healy of Travis Lulu, Midjur, the guy who only wrote one of the biggest selling singles of all time, Do They Know It's Christmas and Masterminded Live Aid also in there is Gary Newman uh, who else, The Proclaimers um, I can't even think of who else is in but you know people of that stature and you know I've been a music journalist and broadcaster for 45 years, and that gave me the machinery to write this book. Mm. I sat for six months at this very desk where I'm sitting talking to you at the moment on this very computer that we're having the chat on. And, uh, you know, I, I, I wrote the book. It took me six months. And there was days where you would look at the computer and nothing would come out. <laughs> or you would look at the computer and you type all this stuff and you'd read it the next day and think, what a load of nonsense. And you would press delete and just wipe it all out. So, you know you kind of really had to be in the mood for doing it. But I kind of got there. You know, I've never missed a deadline in my life. And the deadline was in the 1st of June, and I made it. Yeah. Uh, so, so so, so, that was good. But although, as I said, you know, being a journalist and a broadcaster gave me the machinery to write this book, it was really fueled by the fact that I'm a music fan. Mm -hmm. I'm a music fan first and foremost. And this book is very much written from the the, the, the view of a music fan. And I don't make any bones about it. You know, it's a, it, it can sometimes be a bit uncool to admit that you're a music fan, but I yeah. I celebrate that. Yeah. You know, I, I used to share an office with a guy, and when we were having an argument, he would say, you know, your problem is you're nothing but a fucking fan with a typewriter. <laughs> now, he thought that was a kind of venomous put-down. That was the biggest compliment yeah. he could ever have paid me. Because I think when you stop being a fan and you get, you know, been there, seen it, done it, got the T-shirt, you know, you start yawning. Just walk off the park, yeah. you know what I mean? Don't don't try and force it, you know, go and do something else. You know, go and lie and have a snooze on the couch or go to the movies or walk the dog or something like that. Just don't force it. But, you know, I still get excited. I'm just as excited now in the past few weeks of we interviewed Pete Townsend of The Who, we interviewed Kevin Rowland of Dexter's Midnight Runners, we interviewed Alice Cooper. I just interviewed um, uh, Paul Jones from Manfred Mann. 
uh, last week, a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Jim Kerr and Charlie Burchill from some point, and I still get excited about that, right? Because I'm a fan first and foremost. And I think when you stop being a fan, you should just stop, you know, because yeah. um, I've been very fortunate in that I've got to sort of meet or interview most of my heroes. I mean, I'm a big boxing fan, and I've interviewed Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, um, Mike Tyson. Uh, I've interviewed Sugar Ray Leonard. Um, who else have I interviewed? Football, I've 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 met and and and, and spoke to Pele, you know Kenny Dalglish, uh, you know Maradona, that kind of stuff. You know now, if you're a fan, it doesn't get any any better than that. Yeah. And uh, I'm quite happy to be a fan. It's kind of a bit uncool to admit that because you're supposed to be above all that. But you know, right from the start when I went to interview somebody, and at the end of it, you know. I would get my picture taken with him. Yeah. And the reason for that was that the editor of the Daily Records, who was a great guy called Bernie Vickers, he was aware of what I said earlier, you know, all these all these stars had, you know, a protective cocoon around them of managers and minders and publicists and stylists and record company promo people. And you couldn't get to them. But if I went to interview Paul McCartney, he insisted that I get a picture taken with Paul McCartney. And that proved that while you can't get to them, our guy can get to them. Yeah. Because, you know, a lot of the time you pick up a paper these days and it says, you know, Joe Bloggs interviews Madonna or something. And he's never actually spoken to Madonna. He's maybe had some paragraphs of quotes from our publicist and he's got some information off the internet and he's cobbled something together and, and built it up into an interview. Call me old-fashioned, but I think if you're going to interview somebody, you should actually sit and, sit and talk to him. So, so Bernie, the editor, who was a great guy, he insisted that I get my picture taken with uh, the star that I was interviewing so that we could prove 100% there, yeah. decisively that our guy had met Paul McCartney or Mick Jagger or David Bowie or Rod Stewart or Elton John, right? And the other selfish thing was I thought you're maybe only going to get one chance in a lifetime to be sitting in a room with somebody of that stature. Yeah. Luckily with McCartney, it's been four times. With Mick Jagger, it's been three times. With Bowie, it was seven times. Uh, with Rod Stewart, it's been numerous times. Elton John, it's been four times. But you know, I always took the point of view that if you're if you were going to be sitting in a room with Bruce Springsteen, you would be insane not to have some kind of record of it. Mm. And that's just I just started collecting them, and, and I would ask them for an autograph, and they would look at me and think, "Who's the autograph for?" Expecting it to <laughs> me to say it's my sister's pals, <laughs> Lee cousins, paper boys, nephew. And I would say, well, it's for me. And they would kind of look as if to say, you know, you know, normally, because all the London guys, all the London guys never did that. No. They never did that because they thought they were bigger stars than the stars they were sitting interviewing. So they would never ask for an autograph or ask for a photograph. But, you know, I always did it and I make no bones about it. You know, I'm a fan and, and I remain a fan. And I think, as I say, when you stop being a fan, it's when you should just stop. I mean that's that's fascinating here. That one of the last questions before we move on to our sort of three three fundamentals that I usually ask all the guests. You've mentioned okay. you've mentioned a few names, <clears throat> and I've got written down here in my notes: divas and or volatile characters slash, slash situations that you've yeah. maybe found yourself in. I mean, I'm not going to put you on the spot. It'd be rude for me to say, give us a name of this or person I'm or that I'm, person. I'm, I'm more than happy <laughs> to tell you. Well, I mean, I, 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 in the book, you know, I, I do a whole chapter called I Don't Want to Talk About It. And it's about, you know, the interviews that kind of went pear-shaped. 
And, uh, you know, taxi drivers in particular, you know, you're in the back of a taxi and they look in the mirror and they never go, who's the best interview you've ever yeah. done? So who was the worst? Who was the worst? <laughs> they, always, they always want to know the blood and guts. And um, and the worst interview was Chuck Berry. Right. You know, he he was coming to play in Glasgow, in Irvine rather. I think it was 1989 or something. And um, we fixed up an interview with him and I went down to... to uh, uh, talk to him at a hotel right next to Glasgow Airport, the Excelsior it was called then. And Bernie Vickers, the editor who I mentioned earlier, he said, right, we're holding the front page for this. You know, we're going to use a big picture of the king of rock and roll back in Scottish soil. And then we're going to turn into page four or five and we're going to have two pages where you're interviewing it. And I went down to interview Chuck Berry and he was just, he was horrible. He didn't want to do the interview, despite the fact that it had been arranged two months previously. And he just was monosyllabic. And, you know, and, and at one point he pointed to the photographer. The photographer was sitting with his cameras and all his lenses and stuff. And he went, who's that? And I went, it's a photographer. And he went, no photographs. And I went, why not? He says, I'm, I'm not dressed yet. Now, he looked amazing. You know, he had the slick black, black the, slick, the slick, slick back black hair. He had the sort of... Um, lovely shirt with a sort of bootlace tie with a little, you know, metal cl uh, clasp. He had this sort of buckskin waistcoat. He had the tight sort of faded jeans and the, the cowboy. But he just looked exactly like Chuck Berry. And I said, you know, you look fantastic. And he mm -hmm. pointed to his head. He said, you don't understand. I'm not dressed up here yet. So he wouldn't let us take his picture. Oh. And then when I started interviewing him, it was like, I think the first question I said to him was like, how does it feel to be back in Scotland just to get the ball rolling? He went, I don't know. I've just got here. That was probably his most expansive answer. God. And then it was like, yep, no, yep, no, yep, no. So after about 10 minutes of this, he just treated me like dirt. And this was one occasion where being a fan kind of um, was to my detriment because at the end of this guy treating me like shit for 10 minutes for no reason whatsoever other than he was just being really nasty. I kind of asked him for his autograph. I had a picture of Chuck Berry doing the duck walk with his guitar and asked him for his autograph. And he kind of grudgingly scribbled his name across it and then kind of threw him the pen down in my lap and stormed off. And I always regretted that yeah. because I thought, you know, you've treated me like dirt for 10 minutes and then I've indulged you by asking you for your autograph. And I say in the book that it, it, it's long been my, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Long been my intention to profit from Chuck Berry in some way, because if you go on eBay these days, you know, for a signed Chuck Berry picture, you'd probably be able to get 250 quid for it or something. But as I say in the book, you know, I don't even have the enthusiasm to go in and get it out the drawer and and photograph it and list it and, you know, sell it to some fanatical Chuck Berry fan and get 250 I can't even be bothered, you know. So mm. you, you would get instances like that. I, I interviewed Mariah Carey once and she was a dead loss, you know, I had to sit about... 30 feet away from her in a room full of all our flunkies fussing over her and <laughs> whispering around about her and stuff like that. And, and that was a disaster. I interviewed Damon Albarn of Blur and I didn't particularly like him very much. MC Hammer walked up and in the dressing room looking in the mirror to see if his balloon trousers were, you know, look, look cool in the mirror. Mick Hucknall, I didn't really fancy Mick Hucknall very much. But, you know, as I say, for every one of them, you got an Elton John or a Rod Stewart or a David Bowie or a Paul McCartney or a Bruce Springsteen or a Dolly Parton or a Diana Ross. 
you know, so it kind of it balances the books. Has there been one? Sorry, I keep going on about this. I'm just fascinated no. here. Has there been one where you've you've maybe done your homework and you've maybe heard that somebody's maybe been a little bit of a, a notorious character, difficult with interviews, and you've walked in and and you've found that they're the complete opposite, or you've managed yeah. to get out get out. It's maybe started slowly, but you've managed to turn it around, and it's it's turned out to be a a, a really successful interview. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember in 2003, September of 2003, in fact, I can remember the date. It was the 3rd of September, 2003. The Rolling Stones played two shows at the SECC in Glasgow, one on the 1st of September and one on the 3rd of September. And the, a story appeared in one of the Scottish newspapers saying that they had a picture of a roadie carrying these two silver suitcases into the gig. And um, <clears throat> the story that was printed in this Scottish paper said that uh, the Rolling Stones had bought two defibrillators. I didn't even know what a defibrillator was then, uh, in case, you know, they, they were all getting on a bit, you know, Charlie Watts, Ronnie Wood, Keith Richards, and um, and Mick Jagger. And, uh, you know, they bought these two defibrillators so that if halfway through honky-tonk women, Charlie Watts suddenly had a heart attack and fell off his drum still, they could, you know, get the defibrillator and give him 25,000 volts up his jacksie. <laughs> and, you know, he would be able to climb back onto the drums still for, you know, a street fighting man the next number. Or if Keith Richards called to it halfway through, you know, sympathy for the devil, they gave him a quick blast of the defibrillator and he'd be <laughs> back in his feet in no time. So Keith Richards went ballistic, absolutely ballistic about this. And... Um, I said to the, the, the guy who's the tour director, why don't you get me to do an interview? No, you'll not do an interview. They don't do interviews. You know that, you know that. I was sitting in the office and I f suddenly got a phone call saying, be in the FCC in half an hour and Keith will talk to you. So, I mean, I, ne I never really had any time to do any preparation. And I was going to interview Keith Richards for the first time, the Keith Richards. So along there, and I think it's fair to say that I was petrified because he's got such a formidable reputation. <laughs> And the girl who was working for the the band said, you know, what's all? I said, I'm just a bit nervous um, about getting in. She says, he's a pussycat. You'll love him. You'll absolutely love him. I says, but it's Keith Richards. She says, he'll be fine. So I get taken into his dressing room, and there he was, and he was wearing this big hat, and I think he had a T-shirt with a skull and crossbones on it or something like that, and he was playing this sort of heavy dub reggae music on this ghetto blaster that was the size of a walk-in wardrobe. <laughs> and I sat and interviewed him. And uh, I thought, I'm going to get eaten alive here. And it he, he was great, you know, because he just, you know, he wanted to talk. And and I said to him, I said, you know, something always happens when you come to Scotland, Keith. Why do you think that is? And he said, well, because yeah, the Stones were a Scottish band, man. And I went, what? He said, yeah, we're a Scottish band. You know, we're, we're Scottish. And I thought he was taking the piss. And then he explained himself, the Rolling Stones, and I don't know if you, you'll be too young to even know this, but the Rolling Stones were started in 1962 by Brian Jones, a guitar player, and a piano player called Ian Stewart, who came from Pitt and Weem and Fife. Really? Yeah, that's a true story, <laughs> Ian Stewart. So they, they, they started the band, and then they recruited Keith Richards and Mick Jagger, and then they recruited Charlie Watts, and then they recruited Bill Wyman. And Ian Stewart actually was a full member of the Rolling Stones. In the early 60s, there was six of them. There wasn't five of them, there was six of them. But then their manager, a guy called Andrew Lugoldham, thought that Ian Stewart looked too normal and he didn't want six people in the band. He thought six people was too much. So he kind of sidelined Ian Stewart 
and he became their, 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 their road manager. And um, he played piano in most of their albums until he died in, in 1985. They loved him. They absolutely loved the guy, right? God. So he talked about that, and then I got to the crux of what, what, what he was so angry about, and it was this story about, you know, the defibrillator supposed to be. And I think the headline was, Start Me Up. So that went down like... <laughs> the proverbial lead balloon that, you know, they were suggesting that the Rolling Stones were just minutes away from pegging out, you know, live on stage in front of 10,000 people at the SEC. And it was actually a very good story because um, um, the tour director, who was a guy called Michael Cole, when the Rolling Stones had been uh, rehearsing for that tour, uh, they had a guitar roadie, I can't remember what the guy's name was, and uh, he had taken a heart attack during rehearsals and basically fell down in front of them and, and had a heart attack and died. And Michael Cole quite rightly thought, you know, in any Rolling Stone show, there's maybe 250, 300 people moving from city to city. And then when we get to a city, we recruit another 150 people on the ground. So potentially on any Rolling Stone show, there's something like four, 450 people working on one single show. At some stage in the game, somebody's going to have an accident or maybe have a heart attack. And, you know, we should be equipped for that. So he bought two defibrillators. Sadly, it wasn't able to, uh, you know, save the life of the of the guitar roadie who died. But, you know, he had them and they carried them with him. Yeah. And, of course, the hope was that they'd never need to open them up and take them out of their metal cases and they would never have to use them. But, you know, so, so things like that, you know, things that you think are, this is not going to work out, and it does and, uh, you know, I, I interviewed, I, I talk in the book, maybe most famously in the book, I talk about, I went to Milan to interview Grace Jones mm. and I hung about for two days. We went on the Saturday and then the Friday night, unknown to me and the PR guy, she had gone out to a party with her entourage and they hadn't got back until about six o'clock in the morning and they took the phone off the hook and put the do not disturb sign in the door and said, we have not to be disturbed under any circumstances, don't care who it is, do not disturb. So we hung about Milan the whole of the Saturday, went sightseeing, went for lunch, went shopping, got up on the Sunday morning, went for breakfast, went sightseeing again, did another bit of shopping, went for lunch. And then we got to like six o'clock, half six at night, and we still hadn't seen her or spoke to anybody in our in our entourage. So we just basically had to throw in the towel. It was a complete and utter waste of time. And we were getting the taxi back from the hotel back to Milan Airport to catch a flight to Heathrow at nine o'clock or something. And uh, we were actually down in reception and uh, we had uh, we'd put our bags in the boot of the taxi, ready to go. We were just paying the extras, you know, the phone calls and stuff. And the phone in the reception desk went. And I just heard the, the, the guy saying, Mr. Chalmers, that was the PR guy. Mr. Chalmers, that's a call for you. And Murray took the call and he said, what now? Hang on a minute. So he put his hand over the phone. He says, that was Gracie's guy. She'll do the interview now. I says, but we're, we're, we're going to the airport. We're leaving. He said, well, she'll do the interview now. So I said to the taxi driver, how long have we got? And he said, it's a Sunday night. The traffic ain't going to be too busy. But you'd really need to be off and running in about 20 minutes. You're not, you're not going to catch your flight. So we went up to the room. Murray said, what would, you, what, what would you want to do? I says, well, I'd rather do something than do nothing. We've hung about here for two days. And we've no even spoken to her, so I'd rather do something. So we went up to the the suite, and I walked in, and it was car carnage, absolute carnage. <laughs> there was all these kind of 
semi-naked women, like supermodels all lying about in the bed and the sofa and the floor and the carpet and all these sort of amazing looking guys that looked as if they just stepped out the <laughs> Vogue magazine or some the most handsome guys you ever saw in your life lying about in various stages of undress and on the ground there was on the floor there was sort of room service trays with you know half eaten room service meals and bits of melon and empty bottles of champagne and empty bottles of vodka and whiskey and stuff like that and I kind of did a cinematic pan around the room and I couldn't see Grace and I thought are we in the right room if we come to the wrong suite or something and then this guy waved me over a security guy waved me over to the bathroom door and he said um if you want to interview her, she's having a bath. And I kept waiting for the punchline, but there wasn't a punchline. And she was she was lying in the bath. And uh, he said, you're going to need to interview her in the bath. I went, right, let's go. So I walked in. I sat in the toilet seat, and I put my tape machine on the B-Day, and she was lying in the bath, and I, I interviewed her for 20 minutes. I, I just had to steam in. No pleasantries, just get steam in, ask her the questions. And interviewed her in the bath. And then at the end of it, I said, people are not going to believe that I've interviewed you in your bath. And um, I said, can I get a photograph? Can I get a picture? Expecting the security guy to grab me by the scruff of the neck and throw me out, but he didn't. So I sat down in the toilet floor next to the bath and she kind of leaned out the bath all covered in soap suds and <laughs> gave me a hug. And uh, I, I got the picture. And then a few weeks later, she was appearing on the... Dame Edna, every chat show. Dame Edna had a chat show late night on STV. My old man phoned me up, you've just been on TV, you've been mentioned on the telly and all that. And I was just at a gig, so I didn't see it. And of course, there wasn't any kind of eye player back then, so I didn't know anybody that taped it, so I never saw it. Until fairly recently, Guy Garvey of Elbow does a great programme on Sky Arts called From the Vaults with Guy Garvey. And it's a program of vintage clips from the ITV archive of all music clips of the Sex Pistols and the Clash and mm. U2 and Roxy Music and David Bowie and Mark Boland. You know, some that have only been screened once or some that have never been screened at all. And um, Grace Jones was the guest. You know, they showed a clip of the Grace jo of Dame Edna show and Grace Jones was the guest with Tony Curtis. And she actually talked about she made it look as if I turned up. I was having a bath and this guy he just turned up to do the interview. He just turned up. I was having a bath and he just showed up. You know, she never told Dame Edna I'd been hanging about for two days. And, uh, you know, and, and, and you know, and uh, and she said, and, you know, and he was very nervous, which was true. And she says, but then when I relaxed and that made him relax. And in one of the greatest ad libs of all time, Dame Edna went, I bet you're pleased about that, dear. And, uh, and, and then she said to all the other journalists, when they found out wanted to be wanted to interview her when she was in the bath, but she only ever did it with me. Yeah, and go. then later on, I met her later on, a few years later, I was interviewing her in, in Birmingham and I took the picture down and she signed it for me. Oh, you're the guy from the bath. I remember, I remember. <laughs> and she signed on it, splish splash, I was taking a bath. Oh, love right. from Grace Jones. So, you know, you just you just get a situation like that where you've just got to sort of go with the flow. Right. You know, you've no got time to prepare or or gather your thoughts. You've just got to sort of, you've got 20 minutes, you've just got to steam in and get it done. And that's what happened with both Keith, Keith Richards and also uh, Grace Jones. Billy, I think, you know, we could talk for hours and hours and hours with some of the questions that I've got for you and some of the stories and anecdotes that you've got. And I was going to say earlier on, <clears throat> when we were talking about your book, um, you know, One Love, One Life and the stories from, from the stars that you've written, 
<clears throat> excuse me, there's there's professional footballers that played in England English Premier League that have written autobiographies by the time they're 23. And yeah. like with the stories that you've had over the 45 year career that you've you've had, you could have quite comfortably have written a series of books by now. But I think it's fascinating. I mean, the stories that you'll have in that book, um, you know, even the stories that probably haven't even made the book would be incredible yeah, I mean, to hear about. There was a whole bunch of stuff that we just couldn't put in because of space restrictions. Yes. You know, I, I had a limited number of of words. You know, I think it was eighty thousand to a hundred thousand, and I gave them a hundred and ten thousand, and then they they asked me to chop it down a bit, so I was able to get rid of four thousand. So I think you got. 106,000 words yeah. or something like that but there was a whole bunch of stories that you know about wet 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 and annie lennox and 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 stuff like that we, we just couldn't put in loads of simple mind stories i couldn't put in just simply because we didn't have the space but you know i don't know if there's a volume two i'm not quite sure i've not really thought that far but there was a whole load of stuff that we just didn't have the the space to shoehorn it in that's quite incredible but we always finish this podcast by asking our guests what their three key fundamentals are when it comes to how they communicate. So um, yeah. what would your sort of three key fundamentals be when it comes to communication and the line of work and the, the career that you've had? I just think, as I said before, right at the start, do your homework and be professional because you're 99.9% .9 of the time you're dealing with professional people, whether they're rock stars or footballers or or boxers or, or, or politicians. I've interviewed people in all those categories so be professional and know your stuff because if you don't, you're putting yourself out in a limb. And more importantly, it's really unprofessional uh, and disrespectful towards them. I mean, if you're going into the interview Mick Jagger, know your stuff, mm. know what makes him tick and have a great series of questions which will hopefully elicit a great series of answers because this guy is one of the biggest stars in the world and remains one of the biggest stars in the world. The same with McCartney. So know your stuff and do your homework. Okay, brilliant. Well, that's uh, that you know that's just fantastic, Billy. It's been it's been unbelievable listening to some of your stories. It's been such an insight, and I'm really really happy that I've been able to get this time with you. And thank you so much for the for the insight that you've given. Thank you, Graham. Thank you very thank much you, for that. I hope you got what you needed, oh, and uh, more than I'm always happy to help if I can. So that's keep in great. touch. All right. Thank you so much, Billy. Cheers. Thank Good you. Good luck. Bye See now. you later. Bye.